We're in Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. Matthew 5, 27 through 30. You have heard it that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that anyone who, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. The last reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people, not not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and the swindlers or adulterers, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now... I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside of the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. It's the word of God. You may be seated. So we are in this series on the Ten Commandments. And this week is the Seventh Commandment. You shall not commit adultery. This is a good week not to have the kids in the service um, as we talk about this very serious matter. This command is in the second half of the Decalogue. And it deals with loving our neighbor as ourselves. These commands were not given as a condition for freedom. They were given after the Israelites had had their freedom from Egypt. In fact, they are instructions on how to live free in a free land. In this matter, so many sources say live however you want. Live however you want sexually and you will be free. You will be liberated. But the result is always slavery. 
It's sad. It results in broken families, broken people, the act of life itself being perverted into death. When, you talk, when we talk about sex in church, there are two kind of pitfalls we fall into. Often this is done either not at all or done badly. Many churches make a mockery of the subject. They're so explicit in the, in the descriptions that they get the exact opposite reaction of what they are attempting by increasing the lust in the congregation instead of the power of the Holy Spirit alleviating it. This is a holy matter. It's the one act that results in life. When a man and a woman come together as one flesh, many times this results in a new life which is knit together in the mother's womb by God himself. This is something we do not joke about. This is something we do not take lightly. You can't separate marriage from sex, and you shouldn't be able to separate sex from marriage. All of it is a metaphor. It is a shadow of the sure joy that Christ has with his bride. At the time of Christ, there were many people who wanted to make many laws around the Ten Commandments. Even from the beginning, the idea of the Ten Commandments being a heart matter was abundantly clear in the rest of the Old Testament. In fact, so many times in the prophetic books, God will charge Israel that he'll say, you are doing all these religious ceremonies, but your heart is far from me. By the time of Christ, people had made so many laws in connection to God's law. And of course you do that because you can, you can follow outward laws. You can't follow, follow inward laws that judges your very heart and your intentions. You can show people, I'm following this commandment because I haven't stepped out on my wife. Therefore, I am holy and certainly more holy than the prostitute. This is a rejection of God's law. Jesus would charge the religious professionals of his day wanting to wash the outside of the cup and not caring about the inside. Teenagers, some of you, you, your parents probably have you washed dishes. Hopefully you don't do this. I know one time my mom caught me doing this, just literally washing like the parts of the dishes that she would see. And then you get a cup and it's full of mold. So your parents are looking at your kids. They're like, yeah, right? Jesus says, this is what you're doing. You're filled with uncleanliness. You are filled with corruption. You look nice on the outside, but inwardly you are rotting. Just looking good on the outside, and outside, but in their thoughts, they were just as guilty as the people they wouldn't cross the street to spit on. Most people, unfortunately, are like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We are legalists. We create our own rules, our own God, who's cool with our sin, but condemns other people's sin. Our society has gone uh, through a series of sexual revolution, revolutions. And the idea behind each one is to liberate people from what they call a pure, puritanical system. Surprisingly, though, the rules that govern sexual activity between people, the list has actually grown, not subtracted. There are, they are, these rules are iron and they are nebulous. Many violate these taboos, which were praised in one generation, condemned by the next, and it is only a matter of time before a person is on the chopping block. These, these consequences are severe, physically, emotionally devastating, but spiritually the world system is fatal. The result is the same. People who will look up and they will say to God, we make all these, once again, we make all these rules in our culture at large about relationships, sexual relationships between men and women. And then they, they, they shift. Like, like one was, right? The sexual revolution just 
have sex with whomever, have casual sex. And then under the Obama era, under Title 19, two people in college, they get drunk, they have sex. Now all of a sudden one is called a rapist and the other's a victim. It's more law and law and law. We should go back to the way that God designed it. Marriage is for sex. Oh, how much heartache, how much suffering would we avoid if we just followed God's law? Instead, though, we're like, let's make our own laws. And in God's law, it goes not even just to the action, but also to the heart. Jesus said, if you lust after a woman, you are guilty of adultery. Sexuality in God's design is to mirror Christ and the church. Speaking of this command, so many only understand it as a don't do this. They don't do that and they think, well, I'm good with God. But what about the why? Is it just because of the damage broken marriages do to society that God outlaws adultery? That's not the primary reason. When Jesus says that even lust, the lust behind of, of adultery is guilt, guilty of the act, it's to show this. One, it's about God's design. That one man and one woman should only unite to each, to each other. As Christ, um, as Christ is only united to his church. Verse 31 um, in Matthew, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I am speaking about Christ and the church. Nevertheless, nevertheless, each one of you must love his wife and he, as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. This was God's design for a healthy human existence, but it also reveals something greater, Christ and the church. Now, many people see this. Many people charge the Bible by saying, well, it's not just one man and one woman till death. They'll talk about polygamy because there's polygamy in the Bible. But the, I, the Bible is filled with a lot of examples of why polygamy ends in heartache and ruin, not how polygamy is, is blessed. God's design is still one man, one woman for life in a marriage, in a covenant relationship. Here's the second reason. You are Christ's body. You should, you, you should not unite a member of Christ's body to someone who God has not joined you with. You are Christ's body. So that's why you should not indulge in sexual immorality. Third, God has made you better. He has made you. He has called you son and daughter. You are not to act on your urges as though you were a dog in heat. This is the one thing that I would tell young men when I was a youth pastor is that God has made you better than this. Live up to it. Don't defile yourself. Don't live below the calling that God has given you. Vody Bachman, Pastor Vody Bachman said this, and I thought it really encapsulates the point of why sexual immorality, why lust, adultery, and everything in between is so forbidden. He says this, Now this picture of this one flesh union, this sexual relationship between a man and his wife, says, I know that there's been a lot of talk going on you know, books out there being written about sex and so on and so forth. And just the language that we use and what, what you talk about, what you don't talk about. Let me give you this picture because I don't think we think enough of sex. I didn't say I don't think we think of sex enough. That's not our problem. But we don't think enough of sex. Marriage is a living, breathing picture of the relationship between Christ and his church. Do you know that? 
The church is anxiously anticipating the return of her Savior. You know that the church is anxiously groaning and anticipating the consummation of all things, the wedding feast of the Lamb, the union with the one who saved us. We are anxiously anticipating his return. It's a metaphor for Christ in the church. It should be holy. It should be respected. And when we mess with that, we mess with so much more. It is a sin of the heart. It is a sin of the flesh. Who is an who is a adulterer? In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he gets to the very heart of God's law. It's not just about the actions themselves, but the heart behind the action. It's something only God and the person really truly know where their heart is. A person can seem like they're doing very well with this. It seems like they're watching their eyes or they're, you know, they're dressing modestly, so on and so forth. But in their very heart, they could be breaking this commandment time and time again. Legalists want to focus on the actions because they say, by my actions, I'm holier than others. This section of the Sermon on the Mount is focused on the question, who is guilty of adultery? Jesus reveals that those who think that they are so righteous that they and every but that they and everybody else is guilty of this if they have lusted in their heart. Do you know what the penalty for adultery in God's law was? It was being stoned to death. In fact, that was the guilty of almost every culture in antiquity for adultery. Even the licentious gross ones was death because they saw the importance of good, strong families even in a wicked society. So what is adultery? Most in Jesus' day and in our day would say this. It's having sex with somebody else who you're not married to. Today, the only, the only kind of adultery we actually really look at is if stepping out on a good relationship. But even then, we have excuses. We have exceptions for this to the point where all sexual activity is not only seen as permissible, but blessed. There's a pastor named Brandon, a pastor, named Brandon Robertson, who's on TikTok and other devices. By the way, Pat, um, actually everybody, if you're on TikTok, especially parents, if your kids have TikTok, people are preaching to them on TikTok. Know what they're preaching. He's very, very popular on TikTok. And he'll say, he'll say that relationships like um, homosexual, lesbian, um, are not just permissible, but they are blessed. These are good things. He will say that um, po uh, polyamorous relationships, which is just a fancy way of just saying swinging, are not only just good, but they are holy. These are literally his words. I hope you know such a man is not a real pastor. He is a wolf in sheep's clothing. He does not want to enter into his master's happiness, nor will he let anyone else. But what about we have a big debate in churches about homosexual relationships. Most will say, even in churches, that there's nothing wrong with, with same-sex attraction. But we don't just mean simply being attracted. We also mean a thought life that God would find as detestable. They would say, therefore, if somebody is a homosexual, if they're attracted to other people of the same sex, but they are celibate, they can be a homosexual Christian. Jesus says, anyone who looks with lust is guilty of that sin. The word lust here is trans that is translated here, it means to fix your desire upon. It's the attitude of the heart, fantasies, fixed desires that are dwelled upon, yes, 
The thoughts and intentions of our hearts condemned us. Even amongst pastors, you'll have people say such nonsense. In fact, I was in a meeting with pastors, and they'll say, oh, it, just having the desire towards somebody of the same sex, like having sexual desire, amorous desires. And I'm like, uh, Jesus said to lust after somebody else is guilty of adultery. That's heterosexual, of course, homosexual too. Stop trying to make the barrier less than the Christ, Christ barrier. You're not the savior. You're not the king of this kingdom. When it comes to lust, this is how messed up lust really is. It shows our own brokenness. C.S. Lewis said this, you can get a large audience together for a striptease act. That is to watch a girl undress on, on the stage. Now suppose you came to a country where you could fill a theater by simply bringing a, uh, a covered plate and on the stage and then slowly lifting the cover so as to let everyone see just before the lights went out, that it contains a mutton chop or a piece of bacon. Would you think that in that country, something had gone wrong with the appetite for food? I remember first reading this, and I'm like, I'm so glad he didn't live long enough to know about the Food Network. <laughs> yes, there is something wrong with our appetite for food, and there's something wrong with our appetite, our appetite for sex as well. When people's God don't listen, when the the... the when God's people don't listen to him, it's about salt losing its saltiness. It's not surprising that our culture at large does not have a care for God's law, for God's heart. Why should they? They're not his. And in fact, why should they when, the church, when churches don't either? In our culture, it would appear that the only real sin when we talk about sexual immorality is to shame people who indulge in it, to slut shame. What truly is disturbing is how, many, how so many people will call themselves believers, Christ followers, and yes, Christians, and they will call the very things that, that sent Christ to the cross not only as permissible, but blessed. What happens when the salt loses its saltiness? It can't be made salty again. You know, if we were serious about this command in churches, it would change. It, the depth of impact we even have on this culture would change. If, when a leader in the church violated this. We didn't just switch him to another church and kept it hush-hush. People would know that we are serious about such things. What happens when the salt loses its saltiness? It can't be made salty again. What, um, what, this, what the verses in 1 Corinthians that we are seeing at the body of, of today's sermon will tell us today is what happens when the church messes this up and what must be done to set things right. It's one thing for the people who claim, it's one thing for the people who claim the name of Christ to act in certain ways, and altogether or not, when those who do not claim it to act in the same way. I chose these scriptures for a purpose. In Exodus, we have the command. In Matthew 5, we have the heart of the command. In 1 Corinthians 5, we have the application of this command in church life and in our individual lives. It all has to do with the metaphor that Jesus uses, that if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. This is a metaphor. Do not come next week all looking like Nick Fury. It's not what I want. Or I guess Winter Soldier, right? He doesn't have an arm. Um, it's a metaphor, right? That whatever is wicked in us, we take, we cut it out, and we give to Christ because we are a living sacrifice. We do this because he has bought it with his life's blood so that we might live in freedom. 
especially as believers. But in Corinthians, we see when a church messes this up, royally messes it up, and what must be done so that the truth of Christ may shine through. In verses 1 through 5, we see church discipline. In verses 6 through 8, the infectious nature of open sin. And finally, and finally in verses 9 through 12, about our very association with people who call themselves brothers and sisters in Christ. In verses 1 through 5, we see church discipline. This is my first point right here. And this is difficult. This is difficult because many churches don't engage in church discipline. If a church doesn't engage in church discipline, it's not a church. It's a club. Verse, verse 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. If, you, if you're reading that and you don't hear Paul screaming it, you're not reading it right. If you are a member here, it is different than being a member of a country club, a supermarket, or the YMCA. Being a member means that you have decided to be part of the body of Christ here at Faith Church. Only a few of you I've went through membership class with, because many of you were here under other pastors. Let me just tell you this as your pastor. If you are a member here, you have decided, I am part of of the family of Christ here at Faith Church. And that gives you certain responsibilities and certain privileges. The privileges are that if, if it is God's will and you are where you need to be, you can possibly lead ministries and groups. You can represent this church in different aspects. Responsibilities are this, though, that if myself, the church spiritual leadership, see you strain, gently, passionately, directly, we will speak to you on it. And if you're not repentant, we might in fact ask you to leave and not to come back until you are. Many churches are terrified of that very thing. The Corinthian church, they were terrified of it, but they actually they embraced the sin that was going on. Once again, membership in church has many privileges, but it also has many responsibilities. We have privileges, we have responsibilities, like when there's a child dedication, I bring a charge to the congregation that you are to pray for this child and you are to disciple them when they are ready. It also means you are accountable to leadership of the church. In the opening of chapter 5, we have an example of how messy and uncomfortable this can be. Many pastors and deacons will do nothing. They fear if they do, that that person will leave and they'll find some other church. They'll probably leave anyway. And they might badmouth you in the community at large. So many fear this outcome that they won't preach on this chapter or anything about sexual immorality unless it's in the most theoretical way in which nobody cares and a person can willingly indulge in this sin and not worry about it. There is a popular pastor. I thought about whether or not I want to say his name, but he seems to have had some regret about it, but I'm not sure exactly. And he gave a story in his church about a family, husband, wife, children. And the husband wakes up one day, he says, I'm a homosexual. So he divorces his wife and starts shacking up with some guy. And on Easter morning, the wife, kids, husband, new boyfriend are in the congregation. And he says, church is messy. And myself and many others are like, okay, pastor, shepherd of this man's soul. Are you warning him? Or are you just saying, well, it's messy. Well, I guess not, nobody's perfect. And you know what's terrifying about that? The man will go to his death. He'll stand before a holy God and who will say, away from me, you worker of iniquity, I never knew. And he'll say, 
but pastor so-and-so said it was fine. That's not love. That is comfort disguised as love. This is difficult. The pastor had left the story at that with no mention. There is, there is another popular pastor who says that God worships about, sorry, God whispers about sexual sin. No, he doesn't. Men and women do. They do so in the name of love. They do so in the name of comfort because it will make things uncomfortable if they simply say what God says about this matter, that, that sex is only to be enjoyed and most thoroughly enjoyed in the covenant of marriage. Because sex is powerful. Can I say that again? Sex is a powerful act. Think of it like electricity. It's powerful. It's useful. It has the lights on. We have this right here. But if we just had live wires all around, we know, we know electricity is good. It's useful. We're like, okay, let's strip all the wires. Let's have it everywhere. You know what happened? You touch one of these wires, you get burned. You get seared. And you keep doing it. You get hurt and hurt and hurt, and you don't have any of the benefits of it. And that is what we've done as a culture. We tell people, sex is wonderful. Have it in any way you have it. And they are seared. They are burned. And one day they'll be thrown into the very lake of fire. And they will not have the enjoyment, the wonderful enjoyment of sexual union that is in marriage. God does not whisper about sexual sin. He loves us. If he were to whisper about it, it would prove that he doesn't love us. Jesus says that to lust, just lust is the same as adultery. In Revelation, he includes such people in the list of those who are in the lake of fire. Here in Corinthians, God does not whisper about sexual sin. He shouts it from a megaphone. The church is not a business. Church and churches are not a business. It's long since time we stopped acting like it. You are not a shareholder or customers here at Faith Church. You are the church. Because we love you, we will hold you accountable. Because we love you, you will hold us accountable. The commandment deals with what Christ says idolatry is. This is what Paul says in here. It is actually reported among you um, that there is sexual morality. It's two words in the English, one word in the Koine Greek. It's pornea. It's where we get the word porn from. It includes all sexual deviation from God's intended purpose for sex, which is in the covenant of a marriage between one man and one woman. Pornea includes all, once again, all sexual immorality. When talking about this, it's important to realize so that we don't become arrogant that all of us are broken by sin and all of us are sexually broken. Lust screams this. You should be content with what the spouse that God has given you. So when we lust, we are telling God, no thanks. You, what you've given me is not enough, even though it truly is. I could quote stats and statistics how going away from God's design for sex leads to death and dysfunction. But I want us to realize this. This is a quote from Pastor John Owen. The seed of every sin is in every human heart. And when you say something like this, oh, I would never do that. I'm beyond this sin. Satan laughs and smiles because he knows you're not. There are many, who, there are many people, many a person who woke up to somebody who is not their spouse, and they say to themselves, I never thought I would do something like this. We depend on Christ, not our own willpower, to keep us cleaved to him. 
In verse 2, Paul is beside himself because not only are they allowing this horrible relationship in their midst, they are proud of it. Seems kind of extreme, right? A man, it says, he says, a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant or you are proud. So this is to be understood, his stepmother, not his biological mother, or else Paul probably would have said, um, a man has his mother, it's his stepmother. So, so he's breaking the command that says to honor your father and mother. He's breaking this command. He's not honoring God as the true sovereign of his life. And not only are they not even bothered by this, they're proud of this. And I would like to say, like, okay, that's Corinthians. This is extreme. But I've been in so many churches in which a relationship started in adultery. And the new couple is welcomed into the church's members and leaders. And it's never addressed. We can look at the Corinthians and be like, well, at least we're not like that. In fact, sometimes I like to do that when craziness happens in the church. Like, there could be worse problems. Um, but this happens in churches all across the country. They are proud of this sin. Many times, dictionary adultery is praise because the new couple then goes to church. This... This has exploded in churches all across America. Last Sunday, there was an Episcopal church that I kid you not, had a literal drag show in the middle of service. I thought about showing the clip because I had heard about it. I saw part of the clip. And then when I actually looked at the clip, it's too inappropriate to show on a Sunday morning or a period. The way the man was dressed was ridiculous and terrible. They should be ashamed of themselves. And that's what God says in Jeremiah. Are they ashamed of their abomination? No, they don't know how to blush. What Paul tells them to do in the name of Jesus Christ seems to be harsh. He tells them to expel him, to give him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. This doesn't play well in the media. Like we had this happen at our church. Board members met together. We took them before the church and we said, you're out of here, buddy. It would, not, it would not play well in the media at large. It would not do well. It would not play well in, even in our, in our towns because what you would hear is that church is so unloving. They're judgmental. By the way, we take that verse way out of context. Paul says, I'm there with you judging. Many will say it's not Christ-like. I would suggest to you that these people do not know who Christ is because Christ will throw this person into the lake of hell. Why do this? Why, why throw a person out of this? They will be upset. They will be sad. Because you care more for their eternal soul than their good pleasure. Because in this, there is a hope for repentance. But if you act like nothing is wrong, there is no hope for repentance. They think they're good. And why wouldn't they think they're good? Their pastor tells them they're good. And this person will face the wrath of God. You know, that is sick. How many pastors... They're so afraid of facing the wrath of man, they will let their people face the wrath of God himself. Number two, as Paul goes further on into this dysfunction, in verses six through eight, he talks about the infectious nature of open sin. Six, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a, living le a little leaven um, leavens the whole lump. Cleanse out that old leaven that you may be, may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. 
For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, uh, the old leaven, the leaven of malice, evil, and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. A little leaven. Now, if you understand Paul's metaphor here, I assume maybe you know something about baking. Leaven is yeast. It's what you put into a loaf. You need a little bit of leaven, and it leavens the whole loaf, so it rises. During the first Passover, and every Passover after that, um, Jews, they would go throughout their whole house, and they'd find any bit of leavening, and they would throw it out, because metaphorically during this time, um, leaven represents sin, and a little bit of sin works its way throughout the entire loaf. And we saw that, we see that as we read our Bibles in the Old Testament, it starts off with a little sin, a little compromise. The king takes a wife who he shouldn't have taken, and before you know, people are sacrificing their children to these demon gods. A little leaven works its way through the whole loaf. When it comes to sexual open sin in the congregation, it is a megaphone to the rest of the congregation. This is acceptable. This is okay. And then you have an entire congregation who will then go into slavery, a self-imposed slavery that is not theirs to bear. This metaphor, a little bit of leaven, works through the whole loaf. This is very much like Christ's metaphor of gouging out the eye, cutting off the hand. At early times in medical history, even today, maybe, I'm not a doctor. I was wondering if uh, Brent was going to be in the congregation. I was going to ask him if people, you still do this, if people have gangrene in their body parts. I, I, I'm a, I like history. And I'll go to reenactments. And I love going to Civil War reenactments. And I always go to the medical tent and Becca finds somewhere else to be. And they will talk about, in fact, I thought this was just crazy. It was believed that like when you have like a little cut, you know, like when it starts getting infected, you have like the clear pus that comes out. So they called it laudable or good pus. And if somebody's wound didn't have this, they would scrape some off of one person's wound, put it on the open wound of another. This wouldn't cause infection to, to set in and gangrene. And the only way they had to fight it was the bone saw. Because it would be better for you to walk around without both of your arms than for you to die before you even got home. This is what permitting sexual sin, glorifying sexual sin does to a congregation. It's what it does to society. It's what it does to us. We're like, God, you can have all of my life except my thought life. Don't think God is going to stop there and the devil doesn't stop there either. It's a slow fade. Churches don't start off like the one I talked about before with a drag show on Sunday morning. They start off good. They start off with a burden to preach the gospel, to grow the church. But we, it has long been since time that we need to separate the idea of growing church means more people in the building. Churches go the way of the one I mentioned before through little compromises. It starts many times by taking the verse about not judging out of context, by making excuses. Churches like the one I mentioned before, they say they are churches of freedom, of sexual freedom, which is a lie because a year ago you couldn't attend the church without a mask and without a shot. Such churches literally believe you could go to well, not heaven, not hell, if you don't receive the sacraments. And they said, without a mask and without a shot, you couldn't take salvation. It's not freedom. 
It's never been about freedom. This is the deceitfulness of sin. It says, do this, and you'll really be free. You'll really get to do what you want. And then once you've done it, when you wake up in the morning, you find out you have a yoke of slavery around your neck, and you don't know how to get it off. When we read this, if our thought is that we are beyond this, then we need to wake up because nobody starts off full tilt in this direction. It's little compromises. This is why Jesus says, look at your heart, because that's what God wants. Not your blind obedience, submission, but your heart, that in your very heart you would love him. For the greatest commandment is to love him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Paul speaks of doing this in sincerity and truth. Honesty and truth are not popular, but they are the path God uses for our joy. Truth is constantly under attack to the point that CEOs at LARPA's pastors will, sh- will shy away from it at all cost. The truth is that anything other than sexual union in marriage is sin, and it will not result in anything other than the destruction of the individuals and the community. This includes premarital sex extramarital sex, all kinds of homosexual sex, and all kinds of multiple partner sex. It also includes, though, the very fantasies thereof. The third part in here, as he goes on to this, is further application, and that it deals with association. Primary doctrines. There are certain things that we can disagree on and still have unity within the body of Christ. Many things. This isn't one of them. If, we, if you have a church that believes, hey, all this stuff is good, it's blessed, it's whatever, they're not part of the body of Christ. It must be rejected. If an individual says that I'm a brother and sister in Christ and I'm telling you you can live however you want sexually, have nothing to do with them. Many will say that sexual immorality isn't one, that we shouldn't separate over this. This is directly what God says in this chapter. There are some things that many don't think are really important issues. This isn't one of them. People who either indulge in these sins, or as in the case of the book of Jude, they pervert the grace of God into sensuality, are to be avoided at all costs. God's word here makes an interesting distinction, though, between those inside and outside of the church who engage in sexual morality. Verses 9 through 13 goes into detail. Let me read it for you. I wrote to you in my letter, this is the letter that we don't have, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexual immoral people. Verse 10, not at all meaning the sexual immoral of this world or greedy or swindlers, idolaters, since, they, since, since you would need to go out of the world. It's a very interesting thing. So we have many people, they don't claim Christ. They live the way we see people living. We associate with them. We preach to them the gospel. We don't judge them because they already stand condemned. They already stand judged. So we plead with them. We beg them to be reconciled to God. And we take every opportunity to have a light in the darkness as long as it doesn't tempt us as well to go away from the Lord. But when it comes to a person who says, I am a brother, I am a Christian, I am a, I'm a Christ follower, who says, nope, this is good, this is blessed, we have, we have no contact with them because they look to infect the rest of the church to spread slavery. 
Because Christ has called us to freedom. We have nothing to associate with. We have nothing to do with them. God judges those outside of the church. We warn, we beg, we plead for them to be reconciled to God. Those who claim to be Christians, however, it's different. You notice here, he's not saying, oh, and they're heretics, so don't worry about it. Anybody who claims to be a brother or sister in Christ. We reject them, and we don't have anything to do with them. Those in the world, those who do not claim to be believers, no problem. After all, those are who God calls us to. People who claim to be brothers and sisters are in far more danger, and we are in danger of promoting that. He says, don't even eat with them. They believe that they are fine, and our pretending and accepting them gives them that false sense of security. It's very much like this one-act play I remember going to. One of our teenagers, several churches before this, was in it. And I forgot the name of it, but basically the house is on fire, but they act real casual. They talk about things they need to pack and all this. There's a fire on the bottom floor. The drapes are on fire. They have a narrow window to escape. And they're just kind of like that meme with the dog. He's like, you know, this is fine. This is what it's like in churches when we not just tolerate, we encourage, or we just ignore it. Oh, this is fine. Well, I guess that person's going to hell. Big deal. That's that attitude. And we say it's all for love. The house is on fire. Is it loving if somebody's house is on fire to just be like, so what you doing on Tuesday? How is the football game? We rush in and we try to snatch them from the flames. So here is a real example in, in our current times. Maybe not an example that you can, uh, you can relate to personally, but I think it's one we can all understand. The person who used to have the number one album on the iTunes Christian charts goes by the name Assembler. She had an album that's number one on the iTunes Christian's charts. It was a parental advisory album, no less. She identifies as an open lesbian. She has a girlfriend. And she asked many in the Christian music industry, for instance, Switchfoot, if they affirm her in the LGBTQ community. They say, absolutely, it's a good thing. It's not even just a permissible thing. It's a good thing. It's a holy thing. On the other hand, to my knowledge, Metallica never make any accusations of being believers, of being Christians or Christ followers or anything. So here's a question. If you are a Christian music artist and you are invited to a music festival that has Sembler and Switchfoot, or you're invited to go to like Ozfest with Metallica and other bands like that, which do you go to? Now, of course, you can go to neither because maybe you think that's a rock and hard place. But it would be permissible for you to go to Ozfest and preach the gospel clearly, fervently, lovingly, directly, then for you to go to the other music festival to say, yes, this is fine, we're arm in arm, and this is okay, damning the little ones who come to hear the music. Expel the immoral brother. The verse that Becca didn't read, verse 13, God judges those outside Quote, purge the evil person from among you. The takeaway from this, the takeaway and the challenge from the Corinthian passage is plain. Whether we like it or not, expel, kick out, ask not to come back until repentance is theirs, this immoral person. Man, this would change church life so much. We would, we would protect so many people if we did this. There was 
a revival. This isn't to be confused with the um, um, Pensacola revival, but it was another revival that happened over in Florida. And the leader of the revival was a man named Todd Bentley. I call this out because the charlatan's still in ministry, and it's time we started calling these things out. During this revival, he was getting drunk on alcohol before he took the stage. He was having a sexual affair with his intern, 20 years his junior. When this was found out, everything was stopped, and he went through a period of restoration. During the period of restoration, he divorces the wife and marries the new wife. And they're proud of this. No wonder our culture, no wonder the wider culture at large couldn't care less about sexual ethics. We don't. This is our circles. And very few pastors said a word about it while it was happening. Because you know what should have happened according to Corinthians? You're gone. You're not welcome to come back until we see repentance. Oh, you married the new, the new gal? Get away from here until you truly have repentance because you've shown by your actions you don't have repentance. This is difficult as spiritual leadership, but it is necessary. It's one thing to tell I if I preached this at a pastor's convention, I would not be welcomed back. If I deviated from the scripture at all this morning, if I talked about my own issues or anything like that, or am I talking about what Paul says here? Give them over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh. There might be repentance. So many want the wanna want the benefits that come with the blessing, but not the responsibility. Many, so many pastors want the REV by their name, but not the responsibility of looking after Christ's sheep. You know, modesty of all, in all things is important. It's not what this scripture is talking about here. It's talking about the responsibility of the individual, and that is on you. You didn't lust because that person dressed it provocatively. You lusted because of the evil inside of your heart. And we are to take captive every thought and make it under submission to Christ. The problem isn't the world at large. The problem is in us. So we have an example here in Corinthians of the teaching of Christ. Let's bring it back to ourselves as individuals. In the body of Christ, if an eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Remove it. Expel the immoral brother or sister. And that's hopefully they can come back I don't know if they can reattach an eye, but Christ can reattach an eye or a hand, and it works just fine. Because that's the hope, right? That they'll be restored to God. They'll be restored to Christ. So too for us, we have something inside of our heart that, that God reveals. Maybe it might be something very personally to us, like you can't go to that, you can't go to that place because that's going to tempt you. Now, it's not okay for you to, like, pick it and get that place shut down. Well, it matters what the place is. I'm sorry, I'm thinking of more benign things, but if it's a strip club, let's tear it down. Um, but anyway, if it's, it's more benign, like the supermarket or something like that, no, you take responsibility. You gouge that out. Not literally, once again. <laughs> but spiritually, and you bring it to the altar of God as a living sacrifice. Because worship that does not cost you anything is not worship. Sometimes it might be very dear. Maybe it's a problem that you've been dealing with all of your life. You're like, if I could just get freedom. Well, you come here to, to a place with other brothers and sisters who are praying for you. 
And we are praying and we are believing that God will give you the strength. This is a Holy Spirit strength to cut it out and give it to him. I say, I talk about C.S. Lewis a lot, but he had a lot of great books. There's a book called The Great Divorce. In The Great Divorce, there's this man who has a pet dragon. And as he stands before God with this pet dragon, the dragon starts making some noise, and he's like, I'll, I'll quiet it down, I'll quiet it down. Is it okay? And the dragon keeps making more and more noise, and God expects him to kill the dragon. He's like, I've had the dragon so long. Yeah, it burns me, it bites me, but it's my pet. It's something I love. It's something I hate. But God will not be satisfied with anything less than to kill the sin before it kills us. The metaphor, it was literally a metaphor for sexual sin in this book. The heart is what matters, not just simply the actions. Church discipline and associations must be in compliance with Christ so that we are allowing him to judge and we are not being judges with impure hearts. Third, a savior, there's a savior for the fallen and a chain breaker for those who are in bondage. I do not preach all of this so that you go away thinking, oh, I mess up in all these things. I, I, how can I even call myself a Christian? No, I say these things to remind you there's one who breaks chains. There's a savior for the fallen. There is a one who breaks the chains today. Chains of addiction, chains of lust, chains of anger. And we go to him, we constantly go to him for these things because we are not powerful enough on our own. We never were. And he is the one who gives us true, lasting freedom. Worship team, would you come up at this time? We'll be singing our last song. This is our time for reflection on God's word. This is a time where we ask the Holy Spirit to search us for any unclean thing. I, once again, I chose this past, these passages today for a reason. They explain each other. In Exodus, we have the command. In Matthew, we have the heart of the command. And in Corinthians, we have the application. So one, some people need to hear this command. You are thinking about something with a coworker, a friend, or whomever, and you are here, I'm here today to tell you, don't do it. It's not freedom, it's slavery. A very dear friend of mine, I remember, was on the precipice of breaking this command, and I told him, I will always be your friend, but with all my heart, don't do it. I would rather you hate me than you to do something that will destroy you. Two, you think you are better than others. That is not what this commands for, for you to put your face to this guy and say, thank you, God, I am not like others. Have you lusted in your heart? You are guilty. And I'm here to remind you that you are in constant need of going to the Father with the things that you are dealing with, the sins that so easily entangle, and sacrifice them, gouge them out, and present them before God. Third, who are you hanging around? We say this to teenagers all the time, right? Show me your friends and I'll show you your future. I, adults, we need to hear that. I've known many, many adults who are friends with people who are there trying to minister to, and before long, they're more like them than they were, than they were an influence on the other person. This is especially true if you're hanging around people who say, I'm a brother or sister in Christ, and they're promoting and living these things. Who are you associating with? Will you, will you be obedient, or will you allow that little leaven to take root in your heart? If they claim Christ, 
They have a direct route to your spirit. Be cautious of such things. Would you please stand as we sing our final song and respond to to today's message? We'll end with the benediction. Thank you.